today we'll be reading <clears throat> from John chapter 11, verses 1 through 44. And you can find this passage on the Pew Bible, page 897. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. <clears throat> but when Jesus heard it, he said, The illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then Jesus, then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? <clears throat> if anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of the world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because, he, because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awake him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told him plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us go, let us also go, that we may die with him. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection of the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here 
and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews, I'm sorry, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead for four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had, when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen stripes, and his face wrapped with cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. The word of the Lord. Good morning, everybody. That was some good worship this morning, I thought. I mean, I always think it's good worship, but it touched my heart special today. It's good worshiping with you all. I was thinking about that, the lines of the first song we sang, uh, songs that bring your hope, songs that bring your joy. And it's not just that singing gives us an opportunity to express our joy, it actually brings joy. And to sing with each other and together, it's such a good thing. So I know over the summer when I was on sabbatical, I had to worship from home a lot of that and worship through live stream. And it's, it's not the same thing, is it? Uh, it's coming together and worshiping with each other. So, But it's good to be here this morning, and uh, we're continuing on in our sermon series on joy, the joy set before us. And I have a treat for you this morning because uh, Maylee was telling me I was, uh, she wanted to play with me, and I was not uh, available. And so she said later that she wrote my sermon for me uh, so I would have more time to play with her. So you can see it here. Uh, and uh, she said, now you, can, you don't have to work anymore. You can, just, you can just preach my sermon. She says, all you have to do is just put in your own words. That's all there is to it. Now, that's perfect. You know, so I'm going to just use Maley's sermon. I'm going to put in some of my own words, and we're, we're good to go. 
here. So if you like this sermon, you can make sure you tell Maley. If you don't, I probably messed something up uh, in what she did there. But um, in any case, uh, we're in our sermon series on joy here. And as I've continued to pray about and develop uh, this little mini sermon series on joy, it's grown into an eight-week series on joy. So I've revised uh, my plan, and here's what we're going to do. We're going to do this uh, sermon series on joy for a total of eight weeks. This is the second week then. And then we're going to do a Lenten series through the season of Lent. And then Holy Week, so Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday, will be its own uh, kind of uh, moment. And then we'll get into our Essential Church series immediately following Easter. And then we'll go into 2 Corinthians uh, after that. So that's the new plan. But as you can see, plans keep changing. But that's what I'm thinking uh, we're doing now at this point. So each week through our Joy Sermon series, I'm wanting to explore one of the key pathways to joy. How do we access joy? And so this morning, I want to start with one of the key pathways to joy that I learned about more recently, uh, learned about it uh, in kind of fresh ways over the summer during my sabbatical. But um, this key pathway to joy of grief. And so to get us going this morning, I want to read one of Solomon's Proverbs. Solomon wrote all sorts of Proverbs in the book of Proverbs and in Ecclesiastes, but he wrote some in Ecclesiastes. So here's one from Ecclesiastes 7.2. Solomon writes, Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. For by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. There's a profound counterintuitive insight there. Solomon is saying that the pathway to gladness and joy is through sadness and sorrow. Somehow, the heart is actually made glad, not by focusing on laughter and mirth, but by entering into sorrow and sadness. Now Solomon doesn't explain himself in this verse. He just drops his Proverbs and he moves on. And that's what he does here as well. But what he asserted all those years ago has been borne out by the best insights of contemporary psychology. If you go and you talk to a therapist, they'll tell you very often that to move forward with joy... You have to go back and face the pains and sorrows of your past, which is why when we go to therapists, they're always trying to get us in touch with our grief, which is why we don't like to go to therapists, right? Because we don't like to get in touch with our grief. But they're right. The person who holds grief at bay, ironically, at the same time and to the same degree, holds joy at bay. As Solomon said, it's sadness of face, not laughter, that makes the heart glad. I think the good news for contemporary psychology is that even though it took him 3,000 years, it caught up to Solomon finally, so that's, I think, a win for contemporary psychology. But there's more that needs to be said about the connection between joy and grief that is often said in contemporary psychology and that is said in Solomon's proverb. That wasn't the sermon, that was just the intro. So we got to get into our text here this morning. Because any account of grief and joy that doesn't factor Jesus into the equation 
can only get you so far. So I want to dig deeper into Solomon's insight by looking at the story of Lazarus in John 11, 1 through 44, which has been read for us here. And this story is just, it's just chock full of grief. The grief of Mary and Martha, the grief of their friends, of course, but also Jesus' grief. We see him weeping here in this passage. And this passage offers us two truths about Jesus' grief and how he responds to our grief that are essential for us to know and understand if we're going to enter into grief. And both of these truths are found in verse 33. So we're going to read through this story moving towards verse 33, building towards that verse where we're going to see Jesus' response to the grief around him and find in Jesus' response a way forward for our own grief. So I want to turn your attention back to that passage. I'm always, um, before we get going in our sermon, I want to pray a moment, take a moment to pray. I always, uh, I count the prayers that come before as prayers that actually count. So I don't always feel a need to re-pray every time I come up uh, to, to get going with the sermon. But I, I feel I'm entering into some, some delicate space this morning. So I just want to take an extra special moment to invite the Lord's uh, kindness and healing into our, into our time this morning. So pray with me if you would. Lord, I pray uh, as we engage with this text and by your spirit you begin to stir and work in uh, hearts and minds here uh, in this space. I pray that you would uh, give me the right uh, words to say and the right tone with which to say them. And I, I pray, Lord, that whatever is from you, I pray that you would bring it to bear in gentle and kind ways in the lives of folks here. And whatever is not from you, I pray that you would just sweep it away and that it wouldn't get in the way of what you want to say. So Lord, I just pray that you would come uh, to us in a special way this morning as we discuss this topic of grief and that you would help us uh, to uh, receive whatever it is that you want to speak into our lives. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. All right, so on into our text this morning, John chapter 11. Some of you might be wondering why <laughs> our radiators are banging. I don't know exactly why they're banging right now, but apparently it's gotten cold in here and they've just kicked in. So we'll, it'll stop in a bit, so just bear with it there. But uh, John chapter 11 our passage opens up and Jesus uh, is receiving word that his good friend Lazarus is sick. Based on the end of chapter 10, Jesus is about a full day's journey, a good solid full day's journey away from where Lazarus and Mary and Martha live in Bethany. And so when Lazarus falls sick, Mary and Martha send word to Jesus where he's at to let them to let him know that uh, Lazarus as sick. And Jesus uniquely loves Mary and Martha and Lazarus. We read that in verse 5. I mean, Jesus loves everybody, of course, but at this point in history, Jesus is still bound by time and space, and he can't be everywhere at once, which means he invariably becomes closer and more intimate to certain people than others. And Mary and Martha and Lazarus are some of those people that he has become particularly close and intimate with 
uh, in his life. And so when Lazarus falls sick, Mary and Martha naturally send word to Jesus that the one whom Jesus loves is sick. So then Jesus, when he receives uh, this word, he sends a message back to Mary and Martha that Lazarus' sickness is not going to end in death. But he doesn't leave right away. He stays where he is two more days, and during that time, Lazarus dies. So then finally, Jesus tells his disciples, let's go to Judea. And Judea is kind of the area in and around where Bethany is. It's where Lazarus is, but the disciples don't think it's a good idea to go to Judea. Look at verse 8. The disciples say to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? And the timeline of John's gospel, this story is taking place right at the height of Jesus' conflict with the Jewish leadership in Jerusalem. And Bethany, as we saw, in the reading of the text, is just right on the outskirts of Jerusalem. And so the disciples know that as Jesus moves towards Jerusalem, there's more and more potential for conflict with the Jewish leaders there. And they've actually been trying to kill Jesus, which is why they've retreated back to the other side of the Jordan River where they are now. And the disciples are saying, I don't think it's a good idea to go to Jerusalem. The disciples know how volatile the situation is, and they're afraid that Jesus is going to be killed. And in fact, they're not wrong. Because less than 10 days from this moment, Jesus will have his appointment with the cross. And he's been keeping away from Jerusalem, but now he knows that it's time. Once he sets his face towards Jerusalem, which is what we see him start to do in this passage, when he turns towards Lazarus and Mary and Martha, he's setting his face towards Jerusalem. And he knows that once he starts that journey, there's no going back. To go to Lazarus and Bethany is the first stop on the way to the cross. So his disciples don't want to go, but he tells them plainly, Lazarus has died and I'm going to raise them. So they're like, okay, I guess we'll go and die with him. That you'll have Thomas's response, such a such a pessimist. If you're a pessimist, you can feel take comfort in knowing the fact that one of the disciples was also a pessimist, right? So they're going to just go and suffer whatever fate he suffers. And then in verse 20, when Jesus finally, after the day's journey, he gets to the outskirts of Bethany there. Martha hears that he's coming and goes out to meet him. But Mary doesn't go. You notice that in the text. They both, no doubt, catch word that Jesus has come. But Martha goes to meet him and Mary doesn't. John doesn't tell us why, but I think it's not wrong to speculate that she's deeply hurt. I think she's disappointed, too. I mean, given the closeness of their relationship with Jesus, why hadn't Jesus done more? I mean, he, he's healed from afar. I mean, we can see that in other accounts of the gospel. She must know the stories. He can heal from afar. Why didn't he heal from where he was? And why had he sent a reassuring word that hadn't come true? I mean, given the distance between Bethany and the other side of the Jordan, how long it would have taken the messenger to get there and then get back, it's very likely, scholars think, that Lazarus was already dead by the time the message came back with the assuring word. Can you hear that? Hey, I got good news. He's not going to die. How is he? He's dead. I'm trying to make sense of that, so confusing. And then why had he stayed away so long? 
in the midst of their pain. And I don't think Mary is just being petty or pouting. I think she's deeply hurting. If you've ever had Jesus hurt your feelings, you know what she's feeling. So that's Mary, I think. She loves greatly. We see that in other passages of Scripture. But I think when you have the capacity to love greatly, you have the capacity to be hurt greatly, too. And she's hurt. But Martha comes out to Jesus, and she gives voice to her complaint, her disappointment. And she says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And Jesus assures her that Lazarus is going to rise again, but she takes it to mean that Lazarus is going to rise at the general resurrection of the dead, which is nice and all, but that's not what she wants. And then Jesus sends Martha back to get Mary, and to tell Mary, I want to see Mary. And so now that Jesus is asking for her, Mary picks up her heart, she picks up her hurt and her sorrow and her pain, and she runs crying to Jesus And she falls down at his feet. And when she gets to Jesus, she says the same thing that Martha said. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And that gets us to verse 33. Look at verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. He is deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. So his response is twofold deeply moved, greatly troubled. And at first glance, we might think that this is two expressions just saying the same basic thing. It's actually not. These two expressions come from two Greek terms. And I want to just spend some time here on this. Let's look at this second term. That's the easiest. The second term translated greatly troubled is pretty straightforward. And it means basically the same thing in Greek that it means in English. It's a term of grief and emotional turmoil. So Jesus is not standing at a remove from Mary's grief. He sees Mary grieving and he enters into the grieving with her. This is why we see him weeping in verse 35. So he sees her grief and he makes it its own. And this is a term that we would expect to see here. But the second term is a bit of a sticky wicket. That's where I want to focus our attention. The various English translations all go in the same direction. This deeply moved translation. Some translators say that Jesus sighs in his spirit. Some that he moans or groans in his spirit. Or in our translation, that Jesus is deeply moved in his spirit. And all those translations convey the same basic idea that Jesus is really feeling Mary's grief. But the Greek term translated as deeply moved, it's a pretty obscure term. It's not used very often in the Bible or the New Testament, but the places outside of this text where it is used, it almost always, it always carries the meaning of indignation or anger or even outrage. It's a term of hostility. It's not a term of sadness. Some of you have a little footnote there in your, in your Bible Whenever there's a difficulty in a translation, what the translators will do for the Bible is they'll 
they'll put a little footnote and you go down to see the alternate translations that may uh, be a better translation. And so you go down and you can look and see if you have the Pew Bible, uh, you'll see that indignation is offered as the alternate, alternate translation here. And all the commentaries that I've read on this verse say the same basic thing. That this Greek term almost certainly conveys the idea of anger or indignation. And that the only reason the English translations soften the anger out of John chapter 11 is because it's too hard to make sense of. We expect Jesus to weep with those who weep, as Paul says in Romans 12, 15, but we don't expect to see him indignant or angry. There are actually two occurrences of this term in this passage. It's here in 1133 when Jesus sees Mary crying, but we see the same term again in verse 38 when Jesus is brought to the tomb. And both times, John is telling us, the gospel writer is telling us, that Jesus is provoked. He's angry or indignant about something. So Jesus is definitely weeping and grieving here. That's clear from the term of greatly troubled. But something more than grief is going on. He's also worked up and indignant about something. What is he indignant about? Why is he provoked? Now, thankfully, the commentators that flag this translation issue also provide help in interpreting the text. And so in an effort to clarify what's going on with Jesus and Mary's misery, let me point you back to another story in the Bible that runs parallel to this one. I think it's very insightful. The story is found in Judges chapter 10. You don't have to uh, turn there. If you know anything about the book of Judges, the Old Testament book of Judges, you know that this the account of God's people before the days of the kings and during the days of the judges, the people of God were in a continual downward spiral. And this is basically how I'm going to give you the entire book of Judges in about two sentences here. All right, the nation of Israel would start to worship foreign gods. God would discipline them by sending foreign armies to oppress them. The people would repent, cry out to God in, in their distress. God would raise up a judge who would deliver them. The people are saved. And then after the judge dies, the people would go back to worshiping foreign gods. That's the story of the book of Judges over and over and over and over again. So by the time we get to Judges 10, the cycle has re repeated itself at least seven times. The Ammonites are now the oppressor of choice, and the people are once again repenting, and they're calling out to God for help. But God says, no, not this time. It's time for some tough love. He tells them he's not jumping in and bailing them out again. But the people are like, no, no, no. We really repent this time. We're really sorry. And they put away their foreign gods, even though God isn't delivering them. And they begin to worship and serve the Lord. And then verse 10, 16 says this. And the Lord became impatient over the misery of Israel. Some translations for that verse say, The Lord became indignant over the misery of Israel. The Lord sees the misery of his people, and he becomes filled with indignation and impatience. He's provoked, not at his people, 
but at the misery that has come upon them. And that, I think, is the same thing we're seeing here in John chapter 11. Jesus is seeing the misery of Mary and those that he loves, and he's filled with grief and he's filled with indignation. He's provoked by their misery. Mary's weeping brings him to weeping, and he's greatly troubled by her grief and is weeping with her, but he's not just grieving. He's not just another friend who the best that he can offer is a sympathetic ear and sympathetic tears. He's the king of creation and the Lord of all, and he has the power to heal. And Mary's tears and her suffering provoke his anger and his indignation on her behalf. He's impatient with the suffering that is oppressing her. And I have to think that the nearness of Jesus' cross factors into this moment as well. He has turned his face to Jerusalem. He has girded his sword to his side, so to speak. And he is riding forth to war, to do battle against the forces of sin and death. And here before him, in the pain of Mary and Martha and the death of Lazarus, whom he loved, is all that he is fighting against. And as he stands there armed for war against the powers of darkness, he sees his mortal enemy harming his beloved and it provokes him to indignation, even outrage. He gets hot. And when Jesus says, bring me to the tomb, I picture it like that moment in Infinity War, when Thor drops down into Wakanda and he says, bring me Thanos. And I won't try to say it like Thor, but if you're a Marvel fan, you know. And that's one of my favorite, that is my favorite moment in all the Marvel movies. And I think that's what Jesus is feeling. He's outraged and he's ready for the fight or to go in a different direction because I know not all of you are Marvel fans. This scene also reminds me of an old medieval poem called The Harrowing of Hell, because if you're not into Marvel, you're probably into medieval poetry, I figure. I'll just try to get everything all together there. But The Harrowing of Hell, and in the poem, Satan and Hell, and Hell is personified as the, the voice of the grave, Satan and Hell are taking counsel together just after Jesus has been killed. And Satan tells hell that Jesus is on his way and that hell should get ready to seize him. But hell becomes fearful. Isn't this the same Jesus, he asks, who overcame my power and rescued Lazarus from my grip? And Satan acknowledges that it is and hell begins to panic. If I could not hold Lazarus, he says, how will I be able to hold him who raised Lazarus? And then hell begins to reproach Satan. Why did you kill him? You never should have brought him to me. He will undo us both. And then suddenly the voices of the saints thunder at the gate. Open the gates that the king of glory may come in. And hell cries out to Satan in panic. Get to the gate if you have any power left. Do not let him come in. But the voices of the saints continue to thunder and the gates of hell are thrown down. And Jesus storms into the abode of the dead and seizes Satan and binds him. And then he empties the halls of hell and sets 
the captives free. And however that really happened, I don't know exactly how it happened, but that's the basic truth of the matter because between Good Friday when Jesus died and Easter Sunday when he rose, Jesus entered into humanity's wound of death and defeated it and came out the other side holding us in victory and life. And I think all of that is in Jesus' heart and mind when he stands with Mary and Martha at Lazarus' tomb. He's sad, but he's also fighting angry. And he's ready to throw down the hammer on death. So it doesn't surprise me at all that Jesus cries out with a loud voice of command for Lazarus to come forth. And come forth, Lazarus does. Now here's the point of all this. Jesus not only grieves with us in our grief, he is also indignant. He is worked up about our suffering. And he has the power to heal it. All right. Let me see if I can get myself together and if we can lay hold of all of this for our lives and apply this to us. I did better this sermon than I did the first sermon. That was, okay. Grief is a profound sense of emotional hurt that comes from experiencing the loss of something vital. We have many kinds of wounds, and they run very deep. Maybe the death of a loved one, the loss of our dignity, breaches of our bodily sanctity, and sometimes when the wounds are so deep, They're too deep, and they're too painful, and we can't process them. We can't make sense of them. I think this is especially true with wounds that happen to us in the tenderness of our childhood. I mean, how does the seven-year-old boy make sense of his parents' divorce? It's just too much. Or how does the little girl make sense of her dad hitting her mom? The man who is supposed to provide a haven of safety and security becomes a source of anxiety and fear. And as little kids, we don't have the resources to make sense of these traumas and these turmoils. But it's not just little kids. I mean, even as adults, we can be wounded in ways that extend and outstrip our capacity to process. If you've ever served in the military and have gone to war, you can know the effects of combat and you understand what PTSD is. If you ever lived on the street as a homeless person, if you've ever suffered racial violence, the wounds, they're the deepest wounds. They don't just glance off the surface of our lives, but they hurt us at the core of our being. And when the wounds are too deep for healing, we invariably have to bracket them off. We have to cover them over. We have to quarantine our grief. And then we develop coping strategies to cover over and work around the quarantined hurt. We cover over our pain with anger, 
because we feel less vulnerable when we're angry. We try to medicate our pain with alcohol or sex or our iPhones. We shut off our emotions entirely so we don't have to feel anything. It keeps us from feeling our pain. The problem is, though, that the wound is not healed. It's simply quarantined. And the pain and the hurt don't go away. It just comes out sideways. And we end up hurting ourselves even further. Or perhaps even worse, we end up hurting those around us, the ones that we love. And if you're a grief suppressor, and that's one thing I learned over the summer, right? I'm a grief suppressor. I think we're all grief suppressors if we can get away with it. We try. That's our first instinct is suppress grief. Sometimes we can't suppress grief. And, but as soon as we can get that back down in, we get it back down. We suppress it and we try to move on. But if you're a grief suppressor like me, then listen up. Your anger, your addictions, your hyper-control, your neediness, your emotional detachment, your porn use, how you yell at your kids and say things that you know you shouldn't say but you can't stop saying. We are not the only casualties of our coping strategies. And we harm others in our efforts to protect ourselves and hide from our grief. And even if we just try to internalize our grief, throw it like a lead weight into the backpack of our lives, eventually the backpack gets so heavy and we become so tired. Some days we feel like we can't even get out of bed, just exhausted by our efforts to suppress our grief. And the therapists and Solomon are right. We need to face our grief and our wounds. We need healing, not merely coping strategies. Often in my sermons, I invite you to reflect on how the text intersects with your life. And I want to do that this morning, but, but gently. Because I know that some of us simply aren't ready to enter into the full weight of our grief and wounds. And that's understandable. I mean, the reason we don't like to grieve is because when we let ourselves grieve, we have to re-experience the pain of the unhealed wound. And if the wound was too painful and scary when it happened, it's very likely still too painful and scary. But here's the two-part good news of the gospel that we see in our text this morning. First, Jesus grieves with us in our pain. He enters into our pain and our hurt. He attunes to us. He sees us. He makes our pain his own. He cries with us when we cry because he loves us. He does not shy away from our grief. And he is not afraid of our pain. I'm reading Oscar Wilde's picture of Dorian Gray. Maybe some of you have read it, but there's one line that stuck out to me. There's one of the characters that's explaining why he didn't go visit a grieving mother. He says, I was afraid of intruding upon a pain I could not lighten. 
Isn't that why we withdraw away from the pain of others? We're afraid of the pain of others because we don't, we don't know what to do about it. We don't have the resources to fix it. And isn't that why we withdraw away from our own pain? Because we don't know what to do about it. And we don't know how to fix it. And all we can do is to quarantine it and push it away because we're scared of it. But Jesus isn't scared of our pain because he does have the resources. And that's the second gospel truth from this passage. Jesus is not afraid to face our pain because he has the power to heal our hurt. We're afraid of our pain because it's too much for us, but it's not too much for him. Our pain makes him indignant. It greatly troubles him and provokes his healing power. And I know that there is fear in facing your grief, and that's okay. And Jesus knows it too. He doesn't shove us harshly into our grief and our pain. He's gentle and he's compassionate in his timing. But he's come to heal us. And he can't heal our wounds if we won't let him touch the places where we're hurting. There are places of hurt and grief in your life that you have been holding at arm's length. That maybe now you've begun to enter into a season of life where Jesus is gently asking you, to let him see your pain. Do you remember when you would get hurt as a little kid and you'd be crying, holding your wound or whatever it was and you'd go to your mom and your mom would say, let me see it, let me see it. We, we wouldn't let her. Right? We wouldn't let her because we're afraid that somehow she would hurt it more. It's like that with Jesus. I know it can be scary, but you've, you've got to let him see it if he's going to heal it. You can't keep hiding it from him and from yourself. It's scary to go down into the shadowed valley of our deepest wounds, but we don't have to be scared because we don't have to go into the shadowed valley alone. Jesus loves us, and he goes with us down into the shadowed valley. And he walks with us towards our pain. And when you get there, what you find is his healing love because he himself is healing love. That was the whole point of the sermon last week. Joy transcends our circumstances because joy is a person. Joy is Jesus. And when you walk with Jesus into your wounds, you are bringing the conquering power of joy and life and light itself into the saddest and darkest parts of your life. And that's the healing. He may not fix whatever you think he needs to fix, but he himself is the fix. And to bring his life and his light and his love down into the places of your pain, that is the healing, that is the fix itself. And that's why Jesus has to go with us into our pain. That's why it has to be him. I mean, I can go with you into your pain. Your therapist can go with you into your pain. And Jesus can use all of that, but Jesus has to meet you in your pain somehow. He has to meet you in your pain. Only Jesus can heal the deepest hurts of sin 
and despair and sorrow. And I don't want to be triumphalistic. I don't want to give the impression that Jesus just heals everything all at once. Sometimes it takes time. And sometimes Jesus has to bring his healing touch through a gifted therapist or a trusted friend or a group of trusted friends. And maybe for some of you, this just isn't the right time to look under the bandage. You can't face it yet. And that's okay. Jesus doesn't love you any less. But if you know you are carrying unresolved hurt, and if you often feel the grief bubbling to the surface, if it's all been leaking out sideways and it's hurting yourself and it's hurting those you love, then maybe now is a season of life when it's time to let Jesus see your hurt. Maybe you don't even know where the wound is. You feel the wound and you see all the coping strategies and dysfunctions in your life, but you've covered the wound over for so long that you can't find it anymore. And that's okay too, because Jesus knows where it is. He can find it. And he will guide you if you ask him. So let me end with one very practical piece of advice. Ask Jesus to lead you to your hurt so that he can heal you. Do you have the courage to ask him that? It's a scary thing to ask him. So often we want him to make us strong to make us holy, to make us loving. We see all the dysfunctions of our coping strategies and we want Jesus just to come and like straighten out the dysfunctions of our coping strategies. But we don't want him to touch our hurt. But that's where the healing comes. Ask him to show you the places of your pain so that he can heal them. And isn't that the whole message of the gospel anyway? Jesus, in becoming human, entered into our pain and our suffering. And he crawled down to the deepest hells of our lives, onto our most painful crosses. And he loved us there in the shadowed valley of our sin and death. And then in the power of his divinity, he healed our wounds and he lifted us back up from the dead so that we could enter into his eternal joy. That is the gospel. And what is true of salvation generally is true with the healing of all the hurts and pains of our lives. We have to take Jesus down into the places of hurt and pain. He doesn't send us there by ourselves. He goes with us. And he has the power to heal because he himself is the healing. So don't be afraid of your pain and your grief. With Jesus, with Jesus... It is the pathway to joy. Father, thank you for sending Jesus not just into the world generally, but all the way down into the depths of our own personal hells. Into the hardest places of our lives, into our deepest hurts where we ourselves don't even want to go places that we've buried so deep we don't even know how to go. God, I thank you that Jesus is not intimidated by any of it. 
that he is full of compassion and tenderness, and that he loves us, and that he heals us, and he brings us to joy on the other side of sadness. God, I pray for any hearts here who this message is uniquely for them. It's not for all of us, I know, but it's uniquely for some here who you want to touch some places in their lives that are just so sensitive and painful and they're scared and they don't want to let you see it. But Jesus, I pray that you would, in your gentleness, you would help them to trust you. and You would bring healing and joy out of the ashes of the pain and hurt that is in their life. We thank you that you love us. We trust you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you.